Hey everyone, welcome to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. This is the things don't always turn out as bad as you expect. Sometimes they turn out much worse edition. I'm Cardiff Garcia, and who's that sitting next to me? Shannon Bond. Shannon's back. I'm back. Yay! Guys. So excited to be here. On the show today, we have asked a number of reporters and columnists in the FT's newsroom in New York to come in and briefly share with us one story or one trend or one idea that they think is worth following this year. And Shannon, uh, you'll notice that the theme of our show is things to watch in 2017, not predictions for what will actually happen. I think we've all learned our lesson about predictions. Possibly. Um, <laughs> Maybe not. But on that note, I thought you and our listeners might want to hear about a story where I made a huge ass of myself last year. We always like to hear those stories, Cardiff. Okay, good. Here it is. As you know, one of my duties here at the FT is to occasionally appear on radio and TV, either to discuss something that I'm working on or just the events of the day. It's not uncommon. You do this a lot. A lot of people in the FT newsroom do it. It's just part of the job, right? Right. Being something of a ham, I will confess to liking it, but sometimes uh, you also get yourself into a dangerous predicament and things go awry. So this story concerns an appearance I made on a CNBC show called The Closing Bell, and it was just after the Access Hollywood video of Donald Trump had emerged. This is the video where you'll recall that Trump famously said that women will let you grab them by the you-know-what just because you're a big star. And then in the aftermath, women started coming forward publicly and saying that Trump had done exactly that to them. His poll numbers were cratering. And more to the point, I thought it would be impossible for him to come back from this. I, I think thought, a lot of us thought that. Yeah, because finally, here was something tangible. It was something that you couldn't really argue about. It wasn't like with uh, his comments where people would say, well, he doesn't really mean it. It wasn't like a throwaway thing where he can attribute it to just being like him trying to identify with the common man. Right. This was something tangible. This was something you could not debate. Right. Well, he said, I did this thing. And the woman said, yes, he did this thing. Yes, he did this exact <laughs> thing. So I thought it was over at that point. I never thought he could win until about a week later when the poll started to tighten again. But it just so happens that during that week... I made an appearance on this CNBC show, and the hosts, Kelly Evans and Mike Santoli, were still reporting uh, polls from states where the race was close, like Ohio. And I got all cocky, right? I said, guys, it's over. This is almost a direct quote. People wouldn't let Trump near their kids, much less pull the lever for him. I said that on television, right? It must have been nice to be that naive, Cardiff. I, I was naive, and more to the point, if you were to look at that clip now, I look like an idiot, right? By the way, I did try to find that clip so that we could play a little part of it on the show this week. It turns out that mercifully, CNBC appears not to have kept it, at least <laughs> it not, in a, yeah, at least <laughs> not uh, in a format that's readily available on the internet. Thank Lucky God. you. But my point here is not to make the kind of usual banal uh, admonishment that people should be humble and that they should embrace uncertainty. My point is instead that even those of us who repeatedly and emphatically argue for embracing uncertainty and for being humble can still fall into that trap. This is fairly well known from uh, behavioral psychology, but it was especially painful to me that I succumbed to it, that I was still so vulnerable. Uh, and so I think that is why we've uh, decided that the theme for 2017 for our outlook is not 
stuff that will definitely happen in 2017. It's stuff we should pay attention to in 2017. Sounds good. Okay. Uh, should we start inviting our colleagues into the studio? Let's do it. All right. And first up on the show is David Crow, who covers pharmaceuticals here at the FT. David, welcome back. Thanks for having me. What are you watching in 2017? So I will continue to watch drug prices. There are some in the industry, some investors who think that the election of Donald Trump means they need to stop worrying about uh, high drug prices. But I don't think that's the case. There are lots of Americans, about 50% by some estimates, who are on these high deductible plans now. That means they're going to have to pay more out of their own pocket, sometimes up to 50% towards the cost of medicines. That means when they go into the pharmacy and they order their EpiPens or their antibiotics or, or whatever, they're going to have a sticker shock. And that's going to end up on social media, it's going to end up in the press, and it's going to end up on the tables of congressmen. Uh, in, in, in Washington too. David Crow, thanks very much. Thank you. Next up, we have Kara Scannell, our U.S. investigations correspondent. Hi, Kara. Hey, guys. How are you? Good. Happy New Year. You too. So what is on your agenda in 2017? Well, I think one thing that's going to be interesting to look at is white-collar crime and how, under the Trump administration, that is that plays out. I think there are a couple of big things that people will look for. One is the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, which of course goes after companies and has been a big windfall for DOJ. The Department of Justice. In terms of fines for bribing overseas officials in order to win business. Um, there's a lot of high profile cases. The Walmart case is expected to be settled. The company has disclosed. will be interesting to see what kind of impact Trump's administration has on that. Trump, What's the Walmart case real quick? Walmart was accused. Well, they haven't been formally accused yet, but they're in settlement talks to resolve allegations that they bribed officials in Mexico and other countries in order to set up stores there. What is interesting is Trump in 2012 in an interview called the FCPA a, quote, horrible law, unquote. Of course, we have seen him change his mind multiple times. So it's very hard to say what his view of it will be. He's nominated uh, Jeff Sessions to be the attorney general. You know, there are questions there related to other aspects of law enforcement, whether it's civil rights and, and whatnot, whether he'll pursue that as vigorously as Eric Holder did. Eric Holder, the former attorney general. But for the FCPA, that's a big thing for Wall Street. And I think it'll be very interesting to watch what happens there. Karis Canel, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. Next up is Anna Nicolau, who covers media for the FT. Hey, Anna. Hey, Carter. What are we looking forward to in 2017? I think in the media space, I mean, this started a bit towards the end of 2016 was this push towards consolidation. The big example being AT&T and Time Warner, which is kind of hanging in the balance of the Trump administration now. But that seemed to kind of kick things into gear for a lot of companies, thinking about how they're going to compete in 2017. Media is obviously a tough space to be competing in. Everyone's trying to attract more viewers. There's kind of endless options for where you can spend your time watching stuff. So if AT&T and Time Warner pans out, the, the narrative seems to be going back to we need to merge content and distribution. And so we're seeing kind of other examples being Fox and Sky. Yeah, that's interesting also because there's a lot of skepticism right now across the entire American economy uh, about consolidation, about monopolies, and about anti-competitive behavior. It seems like antitrust or regulators are really taking a very close look at a lot of these deals. And it sounds like, from what you're saying, that the media uh, landscape is going to be especially affected by that. Thanks, Anna. Thank you. Thank you. 
Next up is Sujit Indap, the U.S. Lex editor here in New York. Hi, Sujit. Hi, good to be here, guys. Glad to have you. What are you watching out for this year? So I am interested in bankruptcies and specifically retail bankruptcies. Uh, it was very interesting to see a couple of weeks ago the highest consumer confidence figure that had been reported in 15 years. And obviously, President-elect Trump was very excited about it and taking credit for it. And whether that's fair or not is, is a different question. But uh, last year, there was a bunch of high-profile retailers that either went bankrupt or seemingly telegraphed that they were in trouble. And so these include Aeropostale, the big uh, teen retailer, J. Crew, which seems to be in real, real trouble, which is amazing because it was a, such a hot concept a few years ago. Uh, and then to a lesser extent, Gap, Banana Republic. So any of these kind of mall-based retailers, Macy's, uh, they clearly have just too many stores. Uh, they're maybe not dead as concepts, but uh, as they've been constructed, uh, they're just way too big. and they have like a lot of overhead. Yeah, and that's just not how people are shopping and the brands aren't resonating. And they don't necessarily deserve to just die, but they're just far too big. And so there probably is very little equity value in a lot of these companies. And so they have to reorganize in some way. And so mm-hmm. with a strong economy and a generally kind of positive consumer, it's not like there's a recession and people are just spending less. They're just spending it at new concepts. So uh, two questions come to mind. One is, how much money would they uh, save if they did close down a majority of their retail outlets or a lot of them? Uh, and secondly, would any of these companies make sense as primarily online-based retail outlets, given that when you think of J. Crew, you think of the mall or you think of a physical store that you walk by and think, oh, that looks cool. Maybe I'll walk in and buy it. Uh, if they're just online, then they're competing with a bunch of other companies where they essentially just get – get lost. Their, their value seems like it would get dissolved in that way. Yeah, that's right. There is kind of a brand sense that J. Crew is a place you go into and uh, look at the shelves. Uh, the problem with just reducing your store count is that you have leases and you've committed these lease payments for a long time. And uh, the only way to get out of those is actually to file for bankruptcy and terminate it that way. And so it's not very easy to just shut down or withdraw from stores. But uh, to your point, Cardiff, I mean, there are these hot online concepts, Bonobos, proper cloth, uh, these things where people are really getting used to just simply buying online. And it's a different experience, and the quality of clothes is really high. So there's no reason to go to a J. Crew or a Banana Republic anymore. And there's no switching costs. There's little brand loyalty. And so for these brands that have resonated for a long time, there is no way for them to defend their positions once uh, the consumer has moved on. All right. Thanks, Sujit. Thank you. Up next is Alex Skaggs, my colleague on Alphaville. Alex, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Happy New Year. And what have you got for us in 2017? Well, what I'm going to be watching in 2017 is uh, corporate debt levels because they're already very high. Um, and it's really interesting because people keep talking about, you know, okay, corporate cash has grown a lot. And it has. You know, uh, we were looking at a Credit Suisse report the other day that said corporate cash is up 34% over the past five years. But then you look at corporate debt levels, and corporate debt levels are up almost 80% over the same time period. So sure, you know, we've got big stockpiles of cash, but we also have large and still growing, even though slower than it used to, amounts of debt. And interest rates are rising. So that's going to start becoming more and more important, I think. Are you surprised that more hasn't been made of this to this point? A little bit, but I think it hasn't been a bigger deal because interest rates have been so low. So companies have been able to lever up and lever up, and nobody's really said anything about it because 
they haven't really had that much of an interest payment burden. And people sort of did think that rates were going to be low forever and the yield curve was going to be flat forever. And this was just the way things were. Uh, So in that sort of like new normal secular stagnation type of environment, you can sustain pretty high debt levels with corporations. Um, But everything seems to have been turned on its head. The yield curve is a lot steeper. Um, People are expecting a quicker pace of interest rate increases. And so in that environment, I think companies might have to start really thinking about about debt levels and investors are going to have to start thinking about the the company's debt levels that they're investing in. Yeah, it's an interesting point. We've all gotten so accustomed to an environment where interest rates are falling for almost three decades now. What happens if that reverses course? It could be some surprises in store. Yeah. And I think the first time this sort of set off alarm bells for me was actually a few years ago. Uh, the stock market was rallying a lot. Um, that made sense, right? The the multiples were really, really low in the years following the financial crisis, but earnings had been growing that entire time. And I, someone mentioned to me, I think it was an investor or strategist that was saying, oh yeah, you know, I don't understand why people make a big deal of record profits every year. You know, profits are supposed to hit a record every year. They're supposed to grow over time. Yeah, they are supposed to grow over time. But if you really think about that, I'm not convinced that that's true. <laughs> you know, I mean, if you... If you globalize your company, sure. If you grow geographically, um, there are reasons for profits to grow. But then, you know, there have been a few pieces out saying, you know, this might be as good as it gets for corporate profit growth. And if this is, you know, sort of a long-term peak, like we saw like in housing or something like that, there's a lot of investments, a lot of even like sort of more complicated securities that are based on corporate profits, because people were sort of assuming over this period of time that like corporate profits are supposed to grow every single year no matter what, you know, with, you know, the cyclical downturns, I mean. Um, And so if there is sort of a longer term peak that we've reached, I I think that people haven't really thought through the implications of that. And of course, I don't want to say that it's like going to happen or that it's super likely, but it's just, it seems like a really big blind spot. Never say never. Alex Gags, (laughs) thanks for coming in. Thank you. And up next is Nicole Bullock, who covers markets for the FT. Nicole, how are you? Good. How are you? Excellent. Uh, So what are you watching in 2017? So one of the biggest stories this year is going to be the IPO Snapchat. They filed confidentially, and they are expected to list as early as March. And what we're hearing from sources is that they're uh, aiming for a valuation of 20 to 25 billion. So this would be the biggest tech IPO and most high profile in years. And it's also something that they talk about being consumer-facing. So tech IPOs are very popular and and they gain a lot of interest, even though they might not necessarily be the biggest deal or the best performing in any given year, but especially if they're a company that a lot of regular people know, like a Twitter or a Facebook, it just really galvanizes the market. And tech IPOs have been basically like a desert for the past couple of years. So this is something that we're we're looking at to see if this could really give the IPO market a shot in the arm this year. Yeah, I mean, it could potentially really also turn the tide. We've been talking for a year now, more than a year, about these unicorns, right? These companies with these kind of absurd private valuations. And it's a bit of a moment of reckoning of whether that's really borne out in the public market. So that's exactly right. Uh, This will be a real litmus test for all the unicorns that are out there. So these are private tech companies that have achieved valuations of $1 billion. And they're called unicorns because it used to be a very rare occurrence. But there was tremendous demand in the last couple of years for these private deals. And so these companies, particularly these very popular consumer-facing companies like Snapchat, 
Airbnb, Uber have been able to achieve these really high valuations without having to come to the public markets. And that led to a lot of speculation that maybe the public markets are dead and and hot tech companies don't need to come to the public markets anymore. You know, that hypothesis will be tested this year. And the first one out of the gate is expected to be uh, Snapchat. And does this coincide with a healthier environment for IPOs generally? Um, or is this something that's specific to this company and maybe the tech sector? It's both, really. So it certainly helps that we've had this massive rally in, in the underlying stock market. So People um, can raise more money. Exactly. And you definitely want to list your company when valuations are higher rather than when valuations are lower. And so one of the reasons that we had a very dead IPO market in 2016 was that we had these bouts of tremendous volatility throughout the year and macroeconomic uncertainty. So we had a big shock at the beginning of the year with a lot of concerns about China and the oil price, and then that sort of calmed down. Then we had all of the flurry around Brexit. That calmed down, and then we had a lot of the uncertainty coming into the U.S. election, and there really wasn't enough time afterwards to to get a lot of deals out of the gate before the end of the calendar year. So yes, an underlying, a strong underlying market cer- certainly helps. The other aspect is the the growth cycle of the companies themselves. So a lot of these companies have raised a lot of money privately. So last year wasn't a great time to list your company, and they had the money to wait. So uh, I'm not talking specifically about Snapchat. I'm talking about unicorns in general. If you've been able to raise a lot of money privately, there isn't a pressing need to test an uncertain market. You can wait it out and hope for better conditions, which appear to be happening. Awesome. Thanks so much, Nicole. And now joining us is Ben McClanahan, U.S. Banking Editor. Hey, Ben. Hi there. So uh, what's on tap for your 2017? Well, I think 2017 will be all about financial deregulation. Uh, Ever since that surprise victory a few weeks ago, the the banks, you've probably seen the share prices rocketing, uh, not least Goldman Sachs, which appears to be appointing uh, various people in um, senior positions uh, in in the administration. We've got the SEC chairman, his wife uh, works for Goldman Sachs. We've got Steve Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary, uh, the nominee for Treasury Secretary, ex-Goldman Sachs. Steve Bannon, head of strategy, ex-Goldman Sachs. Gary Cohen, running the National Economic Council, ex-Goldman Sachs, uh, very recently ex-Goldman Sachs. So the banks, including Goldman Sachs, uh, st- stand to benefit very much from uh, this, this change of administration. So my eyes will be on to what extent uh, the Dodd-Frank Reform Act of 2010 is, is rolled back. Uh, my sense is uh, not much. It's going to be very difficult, even in this changed uh, political uh, environment. Uh, to get much done on that front, but at least you can uh, see a, a sea change for, for, for the regulation environment. You've got uh, four of the, the big five regulators going to be replaced within the next year or so, and that means that the supervision, the enforcement, the interpretation of the existing rules, that's all going to change, and probably to the bank's advantage. Yeah, that's a, an interesting distinction to make uh, between legislatively altering Dodd-Frank, which probably would still be quite difficult I think so. because the Republicans don't have enough votes to overturn a filibuster. Now you have an administration that has quite a heavy hand in deciding whether or not to vigorously enforce the rules that already exist. Yeah, which is why the, the, the appointments of the FDIC uh, the OCC, the CFPB, that's the what consumer. What are all those? <laughs> it's an it's a alphabet soup. Uh, the, the OCC, the office, the comptroller of the currency, the FDIC, that's the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. Those are the two guys that look out for, for the asset side of the bank's balance sheets and the liability side. Uh, there's also the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which is a new thing created by Dodd-Frank, relatively new. 
And um, since it's been created, all the big banks have lobbied very hard against it. They, they've said it's uh, been a quixotic rulemaker, subject to the whim of one guy, who's Richard Cordray, a single director. He may well move on uh, within 18 months or so. So it's all changed at the top of these agencies. So that means that for the banks, it's probably good news. And since the CFPB was also originally the idea of Elizabeth Warren, who is right. much despised on the right, that will probably be a particular target for this new administration. I think so. I think it will survive. I mean, it has to survive. I mean, it's looking out for the consumer. It's unarguable that um, Trump was was cam- campaigning on a platform of um, sort of pro pro consumer, pro uh, the little guy, for want of a better term. So the, the agency will survive, but its structure will be changed. I think uh, it'll move from a, a single person at the top to a commission structure, just like the other financial regulatory agencies. And its funding uh, at the moment it has an automatic sweep from the Federal Reserve. I think that's going to change. It'll have to compete in the in the appropriations process for all the cash it needs. Ben McClanahan, U.S. Banking Editor. Thanks, man. Thanks. Shannon, what did you think? Uh, before I tell you that, I want to turn the tables on you. What are you watching in 2017? Okay. Uh, so this is maybe a somewhat pedestrian point to make, but you'll notice that Partly because that this is the FT's New York newsroom, uh, a lot of the things being watched are very U.S.-centric. But as an economics geek, I also like to look abroad sometimes. And this year, I am going to be watching very closely the elections in Europe, in France, Germany, the Netherlands, uh, all of which uh, threaten in some way the integrity or at least the stability uh, of the euro, um, mm-hmm. the eurozone, and uh, of Europe overall. And also there's China, there's what's going to end up happening with the President Trump with respect to our relationship, the U.S. relationship uh, with Iran, with North Korea, and especially with Russia, all of which is uh, really complicated. uh, And I have absolutely no idea just yet how that's going to feed back into economic growth, if at all, or if it even happens immediately. Uh, These are such complicated dynamics, uh, and I, I can't remember starting a year so completely baffled by how all of these different intertwined relationships uh, are actually going to play out. Yeah, it's a whole new puzzle to put together. It is indeed. We only have a few pieces so far. Uh, Shannon, this is just your first week back after a half a year on maternity leave. Uh, But what do you anticipate watching this year? Well, it's interesting when when you mentioned Europe and and those elections. I mean, one of the things I thought about was Breitbart, the conservative news outlet that we saw had such an influence in the U.S. in this election cycle. They're expanding in Europe. I I will venture to make a prediction that they will have some sort of role, have some sort of influence in those elections. And then, you know, thinking a bit more broadly, um, the lessons that have come out of of the election and sort of even for me watching on the sidelines – um, you know, the question of the role of social media, the role of fake news, you know, we've, we haven't even begun to really process that, I think, and, and or understand how to begin to tackle it. Um, and I think it's something that every, you know, for, certainly for every news organization is a huge question, but also I think for every news consumer, anyone who's interested in, in facts and knowledge, um, I think we really are going to have to be thinking differently about what we consume, how we consume it, what approaches we're taking um, to what we read online. And and then, of course, the, you know, for what Google and Facebook uh, will do and the changes they may make to address some of the concerns that have that have been raised. So I think lots and lots of stuff to worry about, but also maybe productive things to do. 
Right. And actually, you just listed the concerns of citizens who want to be really well informed, who care about it quite a bit. And those are considerable. Not to get too insidery, but as journalists, we also have the challenge of convincing people who are just busy with their day to day lives between going to work and taking the kids to soccer practice uh, and trying to pay the rent um, who don't have necessarily the time or the bandwidth to sometimes segregate the fake news from the real news because it's all presented uh, in a way that's uh, hard to discern one from the other. So as journalists, we have to to figure out a way uh, to make those news consumers care enough Mm -hmm. to distinguish between the two because the world hasn't made it easy for them to do that. No, and we haven't made it easy for them, frankly. I I think we've done – a lot of it is uh, the media has has done a lot to hobble itself in that regard. And I think we need to be thinking a lot about what we can do to repair those relationships. And is there a chance to repair the sense of integrity that we certainly probably feel we deserve but maybe we haven't earned? Janet, awesome to have you back. The band Great to be is back. back. <laughs> Even if on a bit of a, a down note. But uh, I don't know. It can't be as bad as last year. Indeed. And that is the end of today's show. Email us at alphachat at ft.com. You can also call us at 917-551-5012. For our overseas listeners, that is plus one country code because we are in the U.S. Rate the show. Leave a review on iTunes. Shannon is on Twitter at Shannon Parai. That's S-H-A-N-N-O-N-P-A-R-E-I-L. I'm at Cardiff Garcia. You just heard what everybody in the newsroom will be watching in 2017. One thing I won't be watching is the production and editing of this podcast because it is always sterling. It is always exceptional. It is always nothing less than perfect because it is done by the amazing Amy Keene. Thanks for everything, Amy. And thanks to our listeners. We'll see you here again next week for another edition of Alpha Chat.